Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Butterfly Kisses, a journey of spiritual transformation. I am your host, Amy Gray Cunningham. Thank you so much for joining me today for an, another amazing episode. But first, I want to apologize to those who may have tuned in yesterday morning to listen to this episode with Nicole Kerr, and it wasn't there. I had a family member unexpectedly pass away on Friday, so I was unavailable to get this podcast ready for you over the weekend. It amazes me sometimes how the universe works because through this conversation with Nicole about her near-death experience and how she now lives her life, it's actually helped me today in my grieving process for my loved one who just recently passed. We talk about in this episode today with Nicole, what it feels like for heaven for her and where she feels heaven is at, and also how to communicate with our loved ones on the other side. So it's an amazing, loving episode, and I hope you will stay tuned to hear about her miraculous story. And just to let you know, next Sunday, the 18th, I talk with Mary Welp about a program that she developed called RISE, which she refers to as a form of meditation that meets self-hypnosis. Basically, through RISE, you can address fears, habits, and imprints with this RISE hypnotic meditation that she teaches, and it increases your pink performance in many areas. Mary shows us a direct, adaptable, and easy four-step process to access meaningful change in our lives. So you don't want to miss this exciting episode next Sunday, September 18th at 9 a.m. And also next Sunday, if you're in the Charlotte area or the surrounding area, there is still time to register for this in-person workshop that I'm holding called Accessing Your Digs. It takes place Sunday, September 18th from 2.30 to 5.30 at Sanctuary Imports on Lamar Avenue. I will teach this simple, fun, seven-step process to accessing your records, your Akashic records, or your digs. By using your digs, you can manifest the life that you desire. So come and learn as I teach how you can receive clear, precise direction that never fails from your divine inner guidance system. The information about the workshop, location, and how to register is provided in the show notes, so please grab your seat today. And also, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple or whatever app you're listening to this podcast. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and just recently TikTok. All the links are provided in the show notes. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter at butterflykissespodcast.com. This way you won't miss it when a new episode is available. And also, if you like what you hear on this episode today, please leave me a five-star review. I would so welcome it and also share it with your family and friends. That way, the more that we continue to inspire others to shine their light, the bigger impact we can make on the world together. So now everyone, please help me welcome Miss Nicole Kerr. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to have you here and to be sharing your story. What an amazing story. We've just been talking a little bit about it before I hit the record button here and Wow, you guys are in for a treat today. So Nicole, welcome to Butterfly Kisses. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be here and an honor. And I feel very grateful that you're having me on your show. Well, I can't wait for everyone to hear your story because it is absolutely amazing. And you have a book coming out about it. Yeah, Your so Death Wish. 
is the name of the book. And it's about my near-death experience, what it taught me to fully live and not fear death. I love it. Such a concept. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. how about that? Because we are very, uh, when it comes to death in this country, we are more about the doom and gloom and the fear about it instead of the positivity of it. Yes. And I, I can't wait for us to touch on, on that because I think, you know, we're all going to die one day. I mean, that's just kind of a given, just like taxes. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just going to happen. And, but it's more of a going home process than anything else. And it's something I have learned since the passing of my husband to never fear. And, but it's for something that is such an amazing going home celebration. There's so much pain that surrounds it for those that are left behind. Yes. So I totally get that. And so first of all, let's go back to 19 year old Nicole. What happened that brought or that put you into that situation of of having this near death experience to begin with? Okay, well, at 19, I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. I don't know if you've ever visited it, but or one of the military academies, but it's a beautiful setting and it's where uh, you can go for four years and get a degree and join the military. So I was the sixth class of females. So it was in that transition period where um, a lot of people still didn't approve of women being allowed into the academies. I was starting my sophomore year there, which is uh, a three degree. So I made it through the worst of it. And I have to say I was there because of my dad. I was not there because of me or my soul. I'm not a killer. I don't like learning how to use weapons and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was a model (laughs) in high school, you know, and here I'm going into fatigues and firing weapons and stuff like that. And it was just not who I was, but I was such a people pleaser in terms of my relationship with my father that he was a graduate in 1960s. So I followed in his footsteps. And what happened in terms of my near death experience was on that day, it was a Sunday and I had gone earlier in the day to the, the commandant of cadets had asked me and two other cadets to come meet and greet potential cadets that wanted to know about the place and talk to some people who were there. So I went and did the meet and greet and then I joined my squadron and there's 40 squadrons at the academy. Mine, mine was number 10. They were having a softball beer ball, beginning of the year game, okay, because school was just getting started, so I got there late, and what happened was I, as as a sophomore, you're not allowed to have a car, or as a freshman, okay, only juniors and seniors, that's a privilege, okay, so um, my roommate and I had decided that we would go back to later learned we would would go back together but we left in the last two vehicles that were leaving and I went with a guy who I thought we were just going to go right back to the academy and he had a different agenda he wanted to stop by a bar and get a drink and then go see the sunset and the next thing I knew when we pulled back on the road we were I went next thing I know I wake up in a hospital and so I was in a Corvette convertible. There was no seatbelts, which turned out to save us. 
I don't know if you can see with the glare. Uh, this is the picture of the car. Can you see that? Wow. Okay, so that was a 65 Corvette. It was completely destroyed. I got to the hospital and it was just, you know, all out about trying to save me. So I, when I woke up the next day, I had no idea what happened. You know, I couldn't remember anything. All I said was, oh my God, don't tell my dad, he'll kill me. Okay. And so <laughs> I'm just thinking, they're like, oh my God, you're, you're, you were found dead at the scene. And the reason I know this is because the paramedic that was there actually came to my hospital about 10 weeks later and told me the story because the only memory I had was, was watching the sunset. We got back in the car and then I woke up in the hospital. Okay. So I have a big gap there of what happened. That big gap did not come back until 19 years later. So your body does hold on to repressed memories. Mm -hmm. And your body does tell the story, but your body has to feel safe to tell that story. Very key. Yes. Very key. So did you experience over those 19 years, were there any physical trauma that you held on to as a result of not being able to remember? Well, let me tell you, at the scene of the accident, I had basically amputated my left foot. My right wrist was severed. My pelvis was broken on both sides. And I had lost a tremendous amount of blood. They had just gotten these pants called masked pants on the bus. And the paramedic that was his first day to use them. And what that does is it forces all the blood up to your heart. So when I, I coded, I, I was, I, he could not get any signs of life out of me until he did something called a sternal knuckle press. And the only sign of life he got out of me was my right people dilating. That was it. So they got an IV started in my neck. And I don't know if you know, but that is not a requirement for EMT or paramedics to do that. They just have to be able to get it in your arm. So you got to make sure you hit the right part here. So he did. And I was out and they got started CPR, got me in the bus, got me to the nearest hospital was a community hospital. Okay. So not equipped to handle trauma, but they got me there. And when I got there, they had, that was back in the day when the doctors were being paged. And so I happened to have a lady surgeon on call that night, who is the first female surgeon in the state of Colorado, first woman who graduated from medical college at, at, um, in Philadelphia at Jefferson College. She's a maverick, unbelievable. And she, she's a thoracic surgeon. And so she got me that night and she knew what she was doing and she and the team were able to just get me stabilized. Something happened during the night that stabilized me. Then I spent the next four months in the hospital in Colorado Springs. And I went through seven weeks of an intensive care unit where I was on a roller coaster. I had a fourth degree lat laceration cut between my anus and vagina. So they had to give me a colostomy to reroute my bowels so that they hoped that area would heal. And I had a really bad road burn on my face from skidding along the pavement. So it shaved off several layers of skin there. 
And then I had different cuts in different parts of my body, um, like under my knee and stuff like that. So physically, they, they pronounced me dead at the scene. They had covered me up with a blanket before the paramedics even got there. And that was what I was told. And so when I woke up in the hospital, like I said, the first thing I said was don't tell my dad, but I, there was no mirror. So I couldn't see myself. I couldn't see what had happened to me, but it turns out they had notified my parents. My mother got on a plane from Jackson, Mississippi to Colorado Springs, I think two days later. And she, in the book, I talk about her, her journey too, uh, of this and looking at me and she just was determined not to cry, but she looked at me. She just didn't want me to die. She didn't want me to die alone, but the military wouldn't tell her how bad it was. And she got there, went in my room and I just said, mom, how long are you going to stay? And she said, well, until however long it takes. And then she went out and she just started crying because she said, I couldn't recognize you. You were so swollen. You were so, you had debris in your hair and feces. I mean, it was just, they were still trying to clean me up from all of this. I didn't remember any of that until 19 years later when I was working at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. And I was coming out of Starbucks, got in my car and all of a sudden had a flashback of how I was sitting in the car because I couldn't figure out how in the world did I slice my foot up, slice the insides of my um, privates, uh, but didn't have a brain injury. I mean, it turns out I did have a TBI, a moderate TBI, but they didn't mm -hmm. have that term back in 83. And so uh, I, I just, it, it was just so overwhelming these memories starting to come so instead of going to work I went to my chiropractor and he said these are repressed memories coming up Nicole and so I didn't go back to work I went home because when I was telling him what was happening I got stuck up in the uh, a spirit came down and picked me up okay and I got stuck at that level because I could actually look down and see my dead body and I didn't want to go back down in that body because I knew how painful it was going to be, given my religious upbringing, given my, my parents, giving everything that I would have to deal with going back to basically an infantile state, okay? I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. I couldn't do anything without help. So I didn't want to come back. And I heard that spirit, and it was a male spirit tell me you are going to go back and your mission is to help to tell people not to be afraid of death. And I'm like, but I don't want to go. <laughs> you know, I really didn't. And so that's been the journey of the last 20 years is trying to figure out, well, how do I do that? How do I tell people not to be afraid of death? You know, there's such a fear-based culture around that, you know, mm -hmm. how am I going to break through any of that? So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of it. And then I spent, you know, eight months at home in rehab, learning to walk again. They didn't think I would walk again. Hours in the swimming pool and just trying to build my strength back up. I lost a tremendous amount of weight in the hospital because I was, I couldn't eat for 
for a long time, for weeks. They put me on um, TPN. And so it was just uh, 64 pints of blood transfused. And that was a time where they weren't scanning blood for AIDS. They, they was right after 83 that they were starting to do that. But all of my, I didn't, didn't get it. And I remember hearing a congressman's daughter was in an accident and she got one pint of blood transfused and it had AIDS and she got it. So to escape that was a miracle as well. So mm -hmm. I spent a long time just physically healing. The one thing that I didn't get was mental health. And that's where my mother and father came in, more, more to my mother, but she told the doctor that God and Jesus were our psychologist and that we would be fine. And that was not true in that case, because I developed an eating disorder as soon as I went to live with my sister because I couldn't deal with the pain. Wow. So you had, you, you said that our bodies hold on to suppress memories until we are physically able to, 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 to deal with them. Yes. What happened 19 years later that you think allowed your body to release that memory for you to remember? I was starting to get help on my own. I started by joining like a 12-step program. You know, it was called compulsive eaters back then. And now we know it's binge eating disorder. Okay, so I started and that started questioning a higher, a higher being. And then I got into therapy. I went to a therapy group and then I started seeing a therapist all on my own. I lived alone in Atlanta. I had, I was really obsessed with keeping in control of driving, not staying out late, not drinking, not being around people who were drinking and trying to control my world. So, so nothing like that would happen again. Right. That takes a lot of energy to be trying to control everything when making sure nothing happens again, it keeps you in a hypervigilant state and it keeps that amygdala in fight, flight or freeze. Right. So yes. I'm not getting this prefrontal cortex able to download and rest and relax. So I started to be able to get resources to get me safe. I was seeing a chiropractor that did body work. And I think being away from my family, especially my parents that weren't there every day telling me God is going to X, Y, Z because you didn't obey or whatever it was, you know, a more punishing type of God. So I think it took that long to build a level of trust that my body could handle that. When you died, you just brought up a good topic to talk about or a good point. When you died, did you actually meet God? I don't know if I have a different concept of God now. I don't mm -hmm. think of God in a personal way. He, mm -hmm. in my opinion, I was taught he's this man in the sky. This is Baptist Lutheran upbringing, you know, that he's judging you and keeping score like Santa Claus. If you've been good or bad, a lot of hellfire brimstone, if you're bad, you know, if you do these mm -hmm. things that are against the rules and there were so many rules and I go to Lutheran church and there's a different set of rules. I think God's even confused about all the rules at all the different churches, <laughs> but that wasn't the essence. It was more like an energy of just beauty. And there, it's like, there's nowhere God is not. 
God is in everything. God is in you and me and the, the trees. It, it, and that's what I realized. It's not some entity or some person or some form that sits up there with a gate in front of him and St. Peter on one side. That is not, the literal translation is not true. And God is love. God is this love energy. And that's what I want people to understand is there's no duality with God. That is a man-made concept. And so it instills fear in people. And what does fear do? It keeps you from living. False evidence appearing real. Okay. And the churches propagate, a lot of the churches propagate that. I know when I grew up, I was scared to death that Jesus, that God was watching me all the time and keeping track. And I was going to go to hell and I couldn't figure out if you get on fire in hell as a kid. Okay. So how do you take a shower? How do you go to the bathroom? Do you have barbecued meat every night? You know, it's like, this doesn't make sense to me. And you're trying to figure out how do you live when you're on fire? Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, that that was my concept as well growing up. And it was scary because yeah. I didn't want to burn. Yeah. And I, did, I didn't want to be separated from my family. You know, yeah. I didn't want my mom up there and me down here. So it, I mean, it really, when you think about it and from a kid's literal perspective, it's terrorizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. For me, for me, God is just, as you said, just love. Yeah. There is, there is no duality. There is no good about it. Just, and God experiences this wonderful life through us, which is why we were created in the first place. Yeah. yeah. And we are all God. I mean, we are all Ooh. these God is within you and me and everyone, you know? So what was your experience like? I mean, you remember now, 19 years later, what was the memory like of heaven, of your experience of dying and then coming back? Okay. So when my memory came back, I felt a, it's almost like a cast for the ghost, but not the form. So it's an energy and it just lifted me up. I remember going up and I remember it having male qualities. And I went and I went at this place and I could hear other conversations going on. So there are other souls, other spirits. And the conversation I was very clear that I was listening to is they were discussing how we, meaning these humans on earth, need to ask them for help. They were clear about asking the angels guides for help. They're not going to interfere unless it is an emergency, like in my case. Okay. They came Mm -hmm. and they intervened in that, but unless they're asked, they're going to not intervene. So that's the, one of the messages that I got is you have to ask for help from the spiritual realm. And secondly, I was up there and it was bliss. Okay. I don't even have the words for it. There is just no negativity. There's no judgment. There's no, there's nothing that you put on the bad side. It's all on the positive side. (laughs) (laughs) Why does anybody want to leave that? Right. And then my guide was telling me, Nicole, you know, you have a mission here and a purpose. And, and I, didn't want to come. I just was, cause I knew there was going to be a lot of pain and suffering involved on a human level to be able to work through this with my family and with where people are in their consciousness right now. 
not being open to this kind of experience. And then I don't even have an idea of how long that was, but I did see white light. That was the only sign that I had from the very beginning was the bright, bright, clear lights. And I asked my doctor, because I went back and I interviewed him in 2008, I found Dr. Stewart, I found the paramedic and I found my intensive care nurse. And they, the first thing they all said to me is, oh my gosh, you're so tall because I'm five foot 11 and I was in a bed for four months. Okay. So I never, I never got up. I mean, I stood up, I mean, sat up, but I wasn't out walking around or anything. So they couldn't believe how tall I was, but they all remembered exactly my story. And I put in the book, their words, what they saw, what they remembered. And I went back to thank them. And it was such a heartfelt experience because most of them were like, we never have anybody come back and thank us. We just, that's just our job. But when somebody they were all very unique and still are unique people that I know were angels that were sent to help me. And I do believe that I had a code blue during one of my operations. They told my mother and dad that I was already gone to start making funeral preparations. I tried to get out of this a couple more times. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't work. I kept coming back against the odds. I mean, one time my lungs filled up with fluid. I couldn't breathe. I was suffocating. And they were pulling fluid off from my back with these huge needles. And then I thought they were turning my oxygen down because nobody was telling me what was going on. And And I was just having the hardest time breathing. And then the doctor finally comes in and she goes, we're going to give you a diuretic. I peed off three quarts of fluid. She told me later, if that hadn't worked, I would have suffocated. Then I had gangrene get in my leg. And they didn't tell me that till later too. They were almost going to amputate my leg. And I'm just like, I don't know if it's good to know beforehand or after. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, I think I have a military angel. I know I have a military angel with me because he fought so hard to keep me alive because I need to do this work and it's not for the faint of heart. And it's got to be somebody who's been there, done it, and is willing to like go out with new terms like eternality, you know, and people go, what's that? Mm -hmm. And to start the positive portion of death. Yes, it's sad to lose someone physically. I'm honoring all of that in the stages you go through, but there are lessons from people that have had NDEs and I weave those 10 lessons throughout my book. And the first one is we don't die. Yes. Yes. And one of the other ones that I I find, I guess it's number nine on the common lessons list that you had sent me. And it says, we will see loved ones and others when we return home. Was that your experience? I don't know. I had not had a lot of family die, you know, so I don't know if the spirits that were around me were connected to me or not, but I just felt that the angel that was with me was masculine and was somehow related to me, but I can't, I can't tell you who it was. I know a lot of people do experience that, Mm -hmm. but that's all I can tell you with that piece. Do you remember what it looked like? You said the bright white light and this masculine angel presence, but do you remember anything about what it looked like? Did it look like earth? Did it look like? No, it was just like 
not fluffy white clouds, but it was just, I, I guess there's, you know, colors that aren't even in our spectrum of colors. It, it's just, it's a whole different world. You know? Where do you think it's at? Where do you think heaven home is actually at? I think uh, it's a different level. I think you're at a different level. It's just like the stars, that galaxy. It's at a different level. And when you look at earth, you get a different view and it changes your perspective, right? Mm -hmm. I think you're in a different plane. Interesting. Now, do you see spirits or angels now? Or do you I, have, I have guides and I have a group of angels. I have two guardian angels and everybody at least has one guardian angel. I hope people realize that, but they do. And I, I talk to mine and I've been able to learn through muscle testing at first, how to trust that conversation. Because I think one of the biggest things about God is there was no evidence that he quote, he was ever listening to you or he ever gave you an answer. And I talk about how you get raised as God is a vending machine concept. You know, you put in what you think you want and you punch the button, Coca-Cola. Well, what if Mountain Dew comes out? It's on you. It's not on God. It's not on the machine, right? And then you go, I must have done something wrong. Or you put the money in and nothing comes out. And it's kind of like that's what God is, is you never know if he's hearing anything because you get no evidence, no physical evidence that he's hearing you or that he's there for you. And especially if you've had a lot of trauma and you've been taught that God is loving and protective, but he allows you to be molested. He allows you to be abused. He allows you to be all of these things The you can't make sense of it. So what is your relationship with God like now? It's evolving. <laughs> I love it. I love that answer. Very. No, it is not. It is not God on the Sistine Chapel, or it's not that white bearded. Uh, it's not a form, a personal form. It's an energy, more so, that's with you and through you, just like your soul and your spirit is that form. Mm -hmm. Now you say that you have a purpose, and that was the reason why you kept being forced to come back. <laughs> and that purpose is to share that, that we don't die. How does that make you feel to know that you went through all of that for this purpose? Does that, Ooh, it's a lot. It was been a lot of pain and a lot of suffering to get to this purpose, but I am so grateful now. I, I, I am just, my whole way of life has changed how I interact with people, what I choose to eat, how just life. I, I am more grateful than ever before. I've learned to expand my heart more and more and more. I've learned that we are in this time right now so that we can love one another, that there are, we all, I was in the military, we all bleed red. And it's like the paramedic didn't care if I was Republican or a Democrat. He was there to save my life. And I think we forget that and we get on these, this division 
and resistance instead of realizing we are all one. What I do affects you, Amy, what you do affects me and this collective consciousness and that we have to do a better job of treating one another as humans, all sentient beings, our animals and mother earth. And this is the time to start stepping up. And I believe I'm a bridge to that. You're a bridge to that new generation coming in that can do it differently. So when, when we die and we go home, do you feel that that's more of our real world? And this is more of the illusion, the dream that we're dreaming Yes. or vice versa? Yes. Yeah. It's like John Lennon said, you know, he didn't believe in death. It was just like getting in one car and out of the other, or like you're in a movie and all of a sudden the movie ends and you open your eyes and you're in a different movie, but that is, that is our home and our souls have this really, really long, long life. And it's, uh, we just, that's the part is eternal. It just keeps going on and on and we keep learning and we keep showing up in different forms and there's more evolved, I believe, places than us. And we have more and more, what I would say, light workers are coming to earth to try to raise our vibration and our consciousness about what we're doing to one another and the inequality in the world. And that that does not serve the greater good of all. Now, you told me earlier about this new word that you're creating, eternality. Yes. Advocate. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I know it's kind of obscure and I know it may be kind of wacky, but when you look in the dictionary and it isn't a dictionary, it's a noun and it really is this state or quality of having no end, just like eternal. It has no end except it's a noun. So it's everlasting, uh, world without end, you know, a lot of prayers in that way. world without end, I'm in, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what it is. And and that's what we've been saying and didn't even know we we, we were saying it, you know? Uh, (laughs) And so I am advocating for that, that we need to start teaching children about that. This is what death looks, death is about. It's not something scary. Dying process may be scary and it may be painful and all of that, But the actual death is truly beautiful. And you are greeted by your angels and loved ones to take you over. You're not going alone. So people that have been scared with the pandemic that their loved ones died alone, mm -mm, they didn't. And you it's more, I think, on you. You felt bad that you weren't there to be with them. But for them, they're a-okay with it. Now, when you, when you were in that car accident and you woke up in heaven, was there any pain like that you remember leaving the body? No, no, no. I, there was no pain leaving at all. I don't remember any pain being thrown through the windshield of all the glass of all the, I don't remember that pain at all. Still to this day, the pain I remember is waking up and then all of a sudden it's mental pain about dealing with my family now, but the physical pain, I was on morphine, Demerol, Valium every seven hours for seven weeks straight because I was in such intense pain. And 
so dealing with the physical pain, I get that because I still have migraines and, and issues where I get pain. And you can't, it's really hard to think positive when you're in pain. It really is. I, I honor that. And so you have to deal with the pain. And that's why the morphine and all that is given to people to relax them. And it takes that pain away. I completely understand that. I had teeth pain several weeks ago and ended up having to have a root canal. And that was like so painful. And it was so hard to be in a spiritual state when I was in that much physical pain and nothing compared to what you went through, but I hate teeth pain anyway. So <laughs> anything to do with teeth, I don't like, but that type of pain for me is one of, one of the worst. And I can remember thinking to myself, I can't imagine people like yourself going through that physical pain. Here I am with just a tooth pain and I'm wimping out saying, but it's real for you, Amy. And the thing yeah. is pain is pain. And when they give you that scale of one to 10, everybody's going to rate their pain different. Some people have a higher tolerance, some people have a lower, but it's real. And we have to remember we're human as well as spiritual. So that's the thing with, with death is you're human. Yes, it's going to be sad and you are going to grieve. We have to deal with those real emotions, you yeah. know, and at the same time to know if you do the work beforehand, you know, where you're going, you're at peace with it. You're not at resistance trying to fight it. One thing to do is find the music that your loved one, if they're close to dying, play their music, not your music or your caretaker's music. Make them have a little CD that they, their favorite songs. And I don't care if it's the Grateful Dead or whatever. It doesn't have to be reverent music, but stuff that they enjoyed listening to through their lifetime and play that for them because your hearing is your last to go. So things like that, because some, we want to play our music, right? Or the caretaker wants to listen to what she wants to, but this is about them and just being present for them. That yes, very true. And I've been there for several of my loved ones who have, who have crossed over and it's a very peaceful process. Yeah. I know that for some, I remember my grandfather had a very hard time breathing, but I don't know if he was actually, if his soul was actually there experiencing what we were yeah. looking at. And it was, it was amazing because I do remember him saying that my grandmother was there in the room yeah, um, yeah. He, and certain things like that. And, and so I still reach out, you know, yeah. yeah. So they're not alone. They see, yeah. they see, they see beyond the veil. Cause at that point, the veil is very thin yes. and you can see beyond the veil. Now let me ask you this question and I don't know how you're going to answer it. So I'll be curious to hear if, you had an opportunity to go back to that 19 year old girl who was getting in that car and you were able to tell her one thing, what would it be? You're not to blame. You didn't do anything wrong. Beautiful. You were just being a 19 year old wanting to have some fun in a very confining military academy mm -hmm. that Beautiful. doesn't allow for fun. So did you blame yourself a lot? Gosh, yes. My parents, I put in the book, my dad was former Marine. And do you remember the movie, The Great Santini? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your father? <laughs> my father. You get an idea. So, you know, he had his 10 commandments along with God's 10 commandments. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so he had rules for us. We were not supposed to drink or smoke or date up or cadets or whatever. Yeah, those were his three. And of course, he thought I did all three. And I'm like, but I wasn't driving. But he still, to make sense for him, blamed me. He said, you made a bad choice and you deserved it. And so as a kid, you're the way I grew up, my father was God in the house. And he basically was my heavenly father too. That's how I thought of God. My <laughs> earthly father is my heavenly father. I had to take a long time to, to really separate that and realize that that's not my truth. And now my dad tells me this day and age, he didn't believe in near-death experiences because they're not in the Bible. And I just, so I have to deal with letting go of that. I did not write this book for my family. I wrote it for you, the audience, and hopefully you can take away some peace and some truth. And it's not just my truth, but it's, it's thousands of other people's truth about these 10 positive lessons. We're never alone. We're never judged. We are more than these physical bodies and brain. And that's what lives on that soul, that beautiful, light, loving soul that so many people get disconnected from and get spiritual amnesia and forget who they really are. They forget that that's who they are because all these filters start coming in and they're being told throughout their life. They're a nothing, they're this or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Now, for those who are in that state of blaming or have had some sort of traumatic experience where they are still physically trying to recover, mentally trying to recover, and spiritually trying to recover from it and move through to the other side. If you had an opportunity to go back and redo and not get in that car, mm -hmm. do you think you would do it? That's a good question because I wasn't happy at the academy and I didn't know how to get out of there without feeling shame. I was, uh, I made it through the worst part, but it was only going to get harder for me, especially academically. I am not an electrical engineer. And that's what I was taking that fall was double E and mechanical engineering. And I'm going, I'm like biology. I mean, I, I, I went into nutrition. I love science, <laughs> but not physics and stuff like that. And I knew that it was only going to get harder. And I didn't know how to not fail. And if I quit, that was a failure. So it's like my soul got me out of there in a terrible way because I couldn't speak up in my voice to my dad and say, I quit. This isn't for me. I couldn't do that because I was so into people pleasing and people pleasing. I love what Dr. Brown and brand says about it. She says that there's a huge cost to your soul when you're people pleasing. You have no dignity, no honesty, no opinions and thoughts of your own and no you. Yeah. And in the South, we're taught that to be a people pleaser. And so that's another big lesson. I want people to look at these identities that they ascribed to themselves and to really question them because the belief systems that you are raised with aren't necessarily true and you need to examine them for yourself and let go of them because they are sabotaging you from becoming the being that you were created to be. Beautifully said. I completely agree with that statement. 100%. If you can tell our audience anything about your experience, 
what do you want them to take away from it today? It's not about just not fearing death. It's living. There's so many people that are not truly living because they're filled with so much fear. I unfortunately have an aunt who has only been out of her house the last three years because of COVID. She is so fearful she's going to get it. Even though she's vaccinated, she's only been to the doctor. And she has aged so much in these three years and just what, not to tell everybody to go out, but just what that isolation has done to her. We are not designed to be alone. You know, we're, we're a web of connection here. So I would tell you to truly live and to truly live, you have to address your fears. And it, that's the work. That's the work of when you get triggered with something, instead of ignoring it and pushing it down with Ben and Jerry's, a pint of, you know, uh, karma, you know, whatever it is that you want to the comfort food or whatever, you know, I dealt with, I worked with eating disorders a lot and the pain from that, you know, is you just stuff it down or you go shopping or whatever the addiction turns out to be instead of looking at the root issue. And that's where the emotional part of wellness. You have to do all four domains. You can't just deal with the physical. You have to deal with the mental. You have to deal with the stress, emotional, and you have to deal with the spiritual. And where we have neglected in the wellness field is the spiritual and the stress because they haven't really figured out how to deal with people's stress levels unless it's reactive. Oh, go ride a bike after the stress has happened. So that's why I'm an advocate of neuroemotional technique, NET, because that's a non-invasive way to help get at the unconscious part of the event that triggered it that you never resolved in your life. And everybody has something that happened to them that they did not resolve and they're playing it out. Every one of us. Exactly. Without a doubt. I mean, and that's part of the experience of why we're here is to work through these experiences. And I think sometimes they're more scary, the more we push them away. But when we stare at them, and we we look at them in the light of day, the darkness goes smaller, because there's so much light. That's right. And your fear transcends to faith, because you know, something greater than you is actually working in your favor. Yes, definitely. So your book is coming out. Where can people buy your book? Hey, can you believe I'm so excited. It's so awesome. I, this has been, so, I mean, I started writing notes in 2009. So for anybody that wants to write a book, I mean, it is, it's a process. It really is. But I'm so grateful that that is where it's at. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your retailer and give me your feedback. Go to my website, www.nicolecurr.com. Please give me feedback. If you have a book group that does the book discussion questions, there's a fear checklist. What are you afraid of? Which will help get you started up. God, what I am, what am I really afraid of? I'm afraid that I don't have a legacy. There's so many pieces to this and I will actually join through Zoom your book club group for a night as you discuss it. That's amazing. That's awesome. My, my son and his wife have a book club group, so maybe I'll get them to read it and then we can, yeah, I would we can all that. read it together and you can join us. So I, that would yeah, be. Yeah, it's fun. deep. I'll tell yeah. you, it's deep. It brings up a lot of questions, but now's the time to address those questions. It really is. 
Yeah. And just so everyone knows, I have found out that Nicole has rewritten the epilogue recently. So you're going, I'm not going to give you any hints on what that is, but it is pretty explosive and pretty interesting. So you will definitely want to read all the way through the book to get to the epilogue. Don't go to the epilogue first. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> read the whole thing and then, and then the epilogue. Because yeah. it is, it's definitely going to wow you in a way that it's, it's an eye-opener. Yeah. It's an eye-opener in how we as humans really look at situations differently yeah. and perceive things differently. So I'm very excited about that. Well, before we wrap up, I can't believe it's already time to wrap up. But one other question that I ask everyone, and I'm going to ask you as well, and you may have a really good answer since you've already been on the other side of the veil. But if you have an opportunity to sit and speak with anyone, whether that person be in the physical or on the other side of the veil, who would it be? And what would you talk about? I think I would like to talk to Jesus. Good answer. What would you talk about? I, I see Jesus. Now you have to remember in a lot of churches, the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Okay. That's not my belief anymore but that's what I grew up with and I've been through the whole WWJD what would Jesus do but I see Jesus now as a way shower and how to live your life and one of the things that I tell people when they throw well Jesus would blah 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 and I said but Jesus also says judge not lest you be judged and here you are judging LBT you know the this gay person, this transgender person, you're judging this politician, you're judging yourself. And I would like to just ask Jesus, what does he have to say about all this? What was made up? What was truth? What was, I don't know. I think that would just be so cool. Yeah. I have a feeling he'd probably say a lot of, or most of it's true. It's just been misperceived. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Oh, I have many different people. One would probably be Jesus as well, just because I'd like to find out what those misperceptions are and truths are as well. Yeah. But definitely my husband. So yeah, one other time. And my grandmother and my grandfather, you know, all of them. Yeah. (laughs) But one day, one day, yes. And I still talk with them every day as well. And I'm still very much part of their world as they are mine. And that's the beautiful thing about you see your loved ones when you go back and it's like it never, the connection never ends. It's like we're all connected. And that's what I hope people can understand is when you do something to someone else that's mean or evil or, you know, it's, you're just putting such a darkness and, and that's not who you really, really are. But there's just a lot of, we're in a lot of tumultuous times right now. So one thing that Chuck has told me, and it was a very eye-opening experience for me when I came to this conclusion, but the way our house is set up, I have one room, the den area, which is where he always sat and watched TV. And then on the other side of the wall was my she shed as he put it, where I had my couch and my TV. And sometimes we'd get into TV wars of who had the, who could get the TV up the loudest so they could hear over the other person, (laughs) you know? And so, and then until finally one of us would say, would you please turn your TV down? (laughs) Now we couldn't see each other because he was in one room and I was in the other, but I could hear him and I knew he was there. 
And I knew that he could hear me. And so he basically used that as reference for me for where he's at now. And I can still hear him and I know where he's at. And, and the same, the same with him. It's just, he's in a different room. But what a comfort to still have that connection. Yes. Yes. And the truth is everybody has that ability to have that connection. Yes. Because we're all spirit. Yes. We just have to learn to turn that switch on and trust it. Exactly. And, and his way, the way he put it is it's a knowing. Yes. I knew he was in the other room and I knew he could hear me and I knew that he would respond. It's the exact same way. And it's taking that knowing and going with it. So, And I know now is my time, almost 40 years later, that this journey has been, uh, you know, and that's the divine timing. Yeah. Everything is about divine timing as well. So Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic interview and I cannot wait to read your book. I'm going to be one of the first people to get it. Um, Thank you. And and I just, I can't wait. And hopefully one day you can sign it for me. We do live in the same state. So maybe we're not too far away. I would love to meet you in person. We will. My intention is to do that and sign it. Yes. Okay. We will make that happen. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Good luck on your journey. And if there's anything I can do to help you, please let me know. Oh, thank you so very much. I appreciate this opportunity. I really, really do. You are amazing. So are you. (laughs) Thank you for joining me on another episode of Butterfly Kisses, a journey of spiritual transformation. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. This way you won't miss it when a new episode is released. Also, if you're interested in learning more about Akashic Record readings, you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation with me by visiting my website at amygraycunningham.com. Again, thank you. And remember, always spread your gorgeous wings, my friend, and fly. Until next time, see ya.